Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Well, part three today of our Transformed series. And uh, our key text is 2 Corinthians 3 and 18. And we all who with unveiled uh, faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Friends, what does it look like to be transformed into the image of Jesus? How does God even make that possible? What does it take for us to be a transformed people? What does it take for our church to be a transformed church. Well, I want to dig in a little bit to um, an incident we find in Acts 19 and 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He then, he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Now, now I want you to take note of a couple of things here. First of all, it says he found some disciples. So these were committed followers. They were disciples. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they were believers. So Paul asks What baptism did you receive? They had been baptized. And they said, well, John's baptism. Paul says, well, John's baptism, that was a baptism of repentance. So there has been repentance in their life. And all of this seems a little bit strange because here is a group described as disciples. They believed. They had been baptized. They had been repentant. But on meeting them, Paul actually discerns that there's something missing. And in reading between the lines, the text would suggest that Paul discerned of these uh, believers, of these repentant disciples, what he discerned was there's actually no evidence of spiritual life in them. The suggestion would be that whatever has taken place in their experience of Jesus um, Yes, they believe, but it's kind of all been an academic exercise. So we asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, uh, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, because they were Jewish believers, it's highly unlikely it means they'd never uh, had never the whole concept of the Holy Spirit was totally foreign to them because the Holy Spirit is very, very, very clearly spoken of in the Old Testament. But rather what they had never heard of is that there was the possibility of actually receiving the Holy Spirit personally into their lives. Paul's question was not, do you believe there is a Holy Spirit? The Paul's, Paul's question quite deliberately was, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive him? Uh, has something actually taken place in your life? Has something happened to you that has absolutely no explanation apart from the fact that the Holy Spirit has come to live within you, that you have received him. And they said, no, we didn't even know that that was a possibility. 
So Paul goes on to ask, well, what baptism did you receive? And they, received, they, they said, we received John's baptism. And Paul clarifies to them, he says, well, John's baptism was actually a baptism of repentance. He had told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is to believe in Jesus. In other words, uh, you have embraced a pre-Pentecost gospel. And a pre-Pentecost gospel tells me, well, I've been wonderfully saved. I've been redeemed. I've been bought out of my sin and I'm forgiven. I'm in right standing with God. I'll go to heaven when I die. But there's something missing. Because all of that, it's very reassuring. It's very comforting. But there's no life in that. And what's missing is what theologians call to be made regenerate. That means you personally receive spiritual life. It's not a head thing. It's not a knowledge thing. It's not an academic thing. It's a very real thing. There's a very real transaction that takes place. That the life of Jesus comes to indwell me, live in me, by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm so glad that I have the assurance that I'm going to heaven when I die. But if all of that is conditional upon me keeping a bunch of religious rules for the rest of my life, just kind of trying my best to stay on track, then it's going to be incredibly hard work and I can guarantee that I will almost certainly fail at it. The only hope that I have to live the Christian life well, and I've said this on a number of occasions, is to know that I, in and of myself, I cannot live the Christian life I can't, but Jesus can. And by his Holy Spirit, he lives out his life through me. Now, when we go back to chapter 18, you actually discover where this lack of understanding came for these particular group of disciples. In verse 24, it tells us a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately although he knew only the baptism of John. He began speak to speak boldly in the synagogue. And these people had evidently sat under the teaching of Apollos. They'd heard true things about Jesus, because this was a man very learned in Scripture. But he himself had never understood more than the baptism of John, so he was not able to share or to teach more than that baptism of John. And so those to whom he'd spoken, these disciples that Paul came across, uh, had never understood anything other than the baptism of John. Now, verse 26 actually tells us when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained the way of God to him more adequately. Meaning they would teach to, uh, to Apollos the full, the, the full message of the gospel. But there's a sense where the damage had been done because he had left those he administered to with only a part of the gospel message. And yes, it's a great message, a gospel that involves dealing with your sin, confessing your sin, being repentant of your sin, being baptized as a symbol of that, which is what John's baptism, uh, the water baptism was all about. But you've never come into the fullness of the gospel, which is the receiving of the Holy Spirit into their lives. And friends, through this time together today, by the time this is concluded, it's absolutely vital that we know that we know that we know that the full gospel is the reality of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. 
And I don't mean that it's a part of your doctrine, that it's a part of our core Christian belief. And you say, well, my doctrine tells me that I must have the Holy Spirit. No, no, that you actually know that you know that you know that you have the Holy Spirit within your life. 1 John 3 and 24, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. We know it not because we've got a verse for it. We know it because the Spirit of God lives in me and my experience of the Spirit of God tells me that he is alive in me. 2 Corinthians 13 and 5 actually tells us, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Now, let's get this straight. He doesn't say test the Bible. He doesn't say test your doctrine. He says test yourself. In other words, guys, just stand in front of the mirror and ask yourself this question. Is there, ev is there any evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in me, that Christ is in me? So how do I know the Holy Spirit lives, lives within me? Well, Jesus actually tells us what to look for. And in this particular context in John's gospel, he's giving to the disciples instruction about what the Holy Spirit is actually going to do when he comes to live inside of you. And from Jesus' teaching, I want to give us just three simple evidences by which you and I might know that the Holy Spirit truly lives within us. Now, the first evidence of the Holy Spirit living in a person is that there is a hunger to know Jesus. John 15 and 26, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to tell you about me. He will testify about me. And friends, one of the marks of the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be that Jesus is going to become central in your life. And the Christian life is about receiving the Spirit of Jesus in order that he might live within us. And when he does, you know something has happened because there is a, an incredible growing appetite to actually get to know him. And in the words of Jesus, the Spirit of God comes to live within a person's heart and comes there to actually testify about Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus, to make the things of Jesus known to us. And friends, we've got to really understand this. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is always totally 100% Christ-centered. And I get a little bit concerned when I walk into a church and the people there only ever talk about the Holy Spirit. And everything is about the Holy Spirit and from the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit and to the Holy Spirit. And, and it's the Holy Spirit around and it's the Holy Spirit down and it's the Holy Spirit up. And, and that's all they talk about, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's actually not New Testament language. The Spirit's role simply is to testify to Jesus, to glorify Christ. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit is actually a preoccupation, not with the Holy Spirit, but a preoccupation with Jesus. And I paraphrase, but in John 15, Jesus said, well, I'm going to go back to my Father, but I'm going to send you a counselor, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he will bear witness to me. He will glorify me. He will take the things of mine and make them known to you. He will make them real to you. Now, here's a, a bit of an interesting aside, but I find it fascinating that the Holy Spirit is actually never given a personal name in the Bible. Now, there's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The Father in the Trinity has names and many, many names. We've looked at uh, those not too long ago. Uh, Jesus has names. Uh, obviously, Jesus is one of them, uh, but there's a variety of others. Emmanuel is another one, just to give you an example. But here we have the Holy Spirit who has been present since creation, who's been present right through the whole of Scripture. But the Holy Spirit is never given a name. He's only ever given titles. For example, the Holy Spirit um, is known as the Spirit of Truth. Uh, the Holy Spirit is known as the Counselor. But he's never given a personal name. Now, why is that? Well, I think a huge part of the reason is because the Holy Spirit's task is actually, is actually not to make us aware of himself. It seems, in fact, he almost deliberately does not want to make us aware of himself in order that we become aware of Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm going away, going away, but don't worry, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. He will bear witness to me. He will take the things of mine and make them known to you. He will glorify me. And friends, we ought to understand that the role of the Holy Spirit of God is to glorify Jesus, to exalt Christ. And that's why the Bible never speaks of us being spirit-like, but it does speak on many occasions of us being Christ-like. And that's his work. And when a person receives the Spirit of God, suddenly Jesus becomes alive. And when he becomes alive, the Bible becomes alive because the Bible is not a book uh, about the Christian lifestyle. The Bible is a book about Jesus. It's a revelation of Christ. Jesus actually said to some Jews, and he challenged, uh, challenged them on this particular occasion in John 5 and 39. He says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These scriptures are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So he's saying you, re you receive the scripture, but he says you're, receiving, you, you're reading the scripture to get to know the scripture. But that's not how life works. It's not how faith works. The scripture actually bears witness to me. And so the first evidence of the spirit of God is that the appetite for Jesus, that Jesus becomes alive. The second evidence is not just a hunger to know Jesus, but a hunger to be like Jesus. Let me explain that. In Galatians chapter 5, many of us perhaps are familiar with this passage. Paul talks about two contrasting things that are actually going on in the life of a Christian. One is what he calls the works of the flesh. That is the old nature. And then you read a whole list of things that are called the works of the flesh. And, and uh, they're the things the old nature loves. And it's a pretty ugly list. But then in contrast, he lists the fruit of the spirit. In verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now notice, these are not described as the fruits of the Christian they're described as the fruit of the Spirit. So he's saying that when you are living in the Spirit and the Spirit is living in you, the fruit of that are going to be these qualities, these nine things, this list of love, of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we can describe the fruit of the Spirit in one word. We sum it up in the word character. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of Jesus. 
And one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit lives in us is that there is a hunger to be like him. Now, there's something we need to be very, very careful to note here, very importantly. These are the fruit of the Spirit, not the flowers of the Spirit. And there is a big, big difference. Flowers, they're beautiful. They're very decorative. They're lovely to look at and lovely to smell. Uh, and, and, and you use them to brighten a place up. Now, you don't generally use fruit for decoration. Fruit is to eat. Fruit feeds the hungry. And when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, and because they are fruit, not flowers, those attributes aren't there to somehow make us look good. No, no, no. The fruit of the Spirit enables us to feed people who are hungry for love, hungry for peace, hungry for gentleness, hungry for faithfulness, and the list goes on. And the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus, gives to us, brings to us the qualities that actually nourish and feed others. So when the Holy Spirit truly inhabits our life, there is a hunger to know Jesus better and there is a hunger to be like Jesus more. And the Spirit of God in us creates that hunger to enrich and to bless other people. But the third thing that then flows on from that is a hunger to serve Jesus. And I say that because in John 7 and 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So grab a hold of this. Jesus said, if you come to me as thirsty people, and drink of me, what will happen then is that that is then going to flow out of your life. Sometimes we can get really, really possessive of the Holy Spirit's work. We can get really, really selfish with it. We want to drink and we want to drink and we want to drink and we want to drink, but we sometimes forget that the purpose is that from us, as we have drunk in, from us there will flow a stream of living water. There's a beautiful picture that in Israel, there is a powerful contrast between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is rich and alive and the whole region of Galilee is fertile because of the life that the Sea of Galilee brings. The northern tributaries flow from Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee. Then the Jordan River flows out of the Sea of Galilee and into the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is totally dead. Nothing at all lives in the Dead Sea. And it's fascinating because these two seas actually have the same source. But one of the main differences is that the Dead Sea has no outlet. It receives, but it doesn't go anywhere. So it's just become this salty piece of dead water. Friends, if we are to allow the Holy Spirit to be unquenched in our lives, there must be an outflow or we too will become dead. For what purpose? There's an outflow to bring blessing and benefit to other people, to have a new compassion for the world in which we live and to have a new desire to serve Jesus. And when a man or when a woman is living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, there is a heart that says, how am I going to bless other people? 
And as we bring our lives in full surrender to him, and as we ask him to fill our lives, there's no question our focus changes. And it's interesting, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Holy Spirit was poured out and the disciples received the Holy Spirit, absolutely everything changed for them. Because if you look at the preceding years before Pentecost, the three years of ministry with Jesus, when the pressure was on for these guys, they were always afraid and running away. You know, when Jesus had been arrested, one of them denied him, one of them betrayed him, and the others just fled and hid for fear. Why? Because at that point, they were still operating in their own strength. They were still concerned, first of all, about their own welfare. And that was their number one priority. But then on the day of Pentecost, this wonderful transformation, and you see totally different people. Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he speaks suddenly for the first time with absolute authority. And 3,000 people were added to their number. But then opposition comes very, very quickly and Peter is thrown into prison. But even there, he doesn't panic. Then they had him brought before the local Sanhedrin council. Uh, These are the guys that had actually sentenced Jesus to death. And the men of this council could not understand why these apostles, these unschooled, ordinary men, the ones who had been weak, the ones who had been hiding, who had run away, they couldn't understand how can they suddenly in now be bold and courageous? Acts 4 and 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And what they concluded was this. Tell you what, Jesus just had an incredible influence on these men. That was their conclusion, but that wasn't the answer because they'd been with Jesus for three years and at the end of that time, they were still weak. No, what they actually saw was the influence of Jesus being present in them by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who had given them the boldness and courage. And the book of Acts tells us they then gained the reputation for men who went and turned their world upside down. Friends, as I wrap this up, we've got to know the evidence that a man or woman has received the Holy Spirit is that there is a hunger to know Jesus, there is a hunger to be like Jesus, and there is a hunger to serve Jesus. And if these things are not true in your life, either you've never received him or you are perhaps quenching him because it is possible to receive him, but then begin to live your life your own way as if the Holy Spirit wasn't there. The the, the New Testament tells us plainly we can resist the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit, and we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And if those things are evident in our life, then there is no evidence of the presence of Jesus. There's no evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit is given the room to move and fully occupy your life, then there's a new hunger and a new motivation and a new perspective and new priorities. And that hunger, friends, is never satisfied. And can I say, the more I learn about Jesus, the more I want to learn about Jesus. And the more I want to be like Jesus. And the more I want to serve Jesus. And that is the evidence of the Spirit of God, a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. Because true Christianity, get a hold of this, is not following Jesus. 
And that is certainly how the disciples were described as followers of Christ, but they were only ever described that way before Pentecost, followers of Jesus. But interestingly enough, after the day of Pentecost, they were never ever called followers of Jesus again. I don't call myself a follower of Christ. I'm not following behind him. I'm not merely trying to imitate him. I'm not trying to second guess the kinds of things that Jesus would do. We've got to know Jesus is actually in me. You are in Christ. You're not a step behind him. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. Now, there is a sense in which we do follow him in that he guides us and leads us. But Christians never again were called followers of Jesus after Pentecost. And maybe there are some of us viewing this today. Maybe, you know, you've been exposed to church for years, but it all feels a little bit flat. It all feels a little bit routine. Maybe for some of us, we've even become a little bit cynical about people who always seem to be so incredibly excited about Jesus. Maybe feeling even a little bit threatened by those who seem to have such incredible life in Jesus. And the reason, perhaps, for that is that you've never known that yourself. You may have a belief in Christianity, but maybe it's not that life-giving experience. Friends, as we are filled with the Spirit, the focus always shifts from what I do to what He does. It's not just about becoming a Christian. It is now by the Holy Spirit. We can then start being the Christians we have become. It's never what I do for Jesus. It's what he does in me because he is alive and therefore I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And my prayer maybe is that some of those of you today and, and, and maybe God's speaking to you even right now. And I'm just going to pray for us in a second. And it's just a very simple prayer. And that is, Holy Spirit, come and live within me. And don't be scared about that. It's not something to be frightened of. We should never be afraid of what God wants to do in us by the Holy Spirit because that's actually the, the evidence and the essence of our faith. God wonderfully brings us out of our sin to then be brought into the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me because I, I think this is one of the most important prayers we can pray. And, and maybe it's critically important for somebody viewing this right now. So if God's been speaking to you, pray with me. And Father, that is our prayer. Simply fill me. Holy Spirit, fill me. May there be a hunger to know Jesus, a hunger to be like Jesus, a hunger to serve Jesus that can only come from your Holy Spirit. Transform us, I pray. Holy Spirit, come. And maybe for some of us, we've walked in the fullness of knowing Jesus. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit is in us, but maybe there has been that quenching or that resistance. Surrender afresh to him. Jesus, have your way in me. Holy Spirit, take control. Free reign, free reign. I let go of trying to control my own life and, and fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. And Father, by your Holy Spirit, make this a reality, an unfolding truth, an unfolding experience. Transform us to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.